Sarah Payne, Managing Partner of SNC's Palo Alto office. And I'm Matt Goodman, an M&A partner at SNC. Today, we're talking with Davis Wang, co-head of our tax practice, and Bashir Karam, a member of our estate and personal group. There's been a lot of talk about what tax changes may be coming out of the Biden administration, and a number of the changes that have been thrown about would have significant impacts on founders, companies, and venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Davis and Bashir are going to tell us what's in, and perhaps more importantly, what's out of the new tax changes, at least where they stand today. They're also going to give us some thoughts on tax planning ideas. First, Davis, where do things stand in terms of the tax changes? Have they been finalized, or could there be more changes coming? Thanks, Matt. They have not been finalized, and there certainly could be more changes. Before we get into the details of the legislation, it might make sense for us just to set the stage and give a brief overview of how we got here. On September 13th, the House Ways and Means Committee circulated proposed tax legislation, which would have significantly transformed current tax law, and as a result, touched off a frenzy among tax lawyers and estate planners. Many tax and estate planning experts have spent the past couple of months helping clients and trusts transfer assets prior to the potential change in law. However, as you may have heard over the past several weeks, certain Democratic senators publicly criticized the September proposal and vowed that they would not support any tax increase. For better or for worse, depending on your perspective politically, the original proposal, therefore, did not come to pass, and on October 28th, the House reissued a draft of the tax legislation, which deviated substantially from the September version and made the hysteria of the past month or so more or less for naught. The most recent and slimmed down version of the bill will be the subject of our discussion today. Got it, Davis. Why don't we start first with individual tax rates? What's happening there? Well, Sarah, income tax rates are likely going up for some effective January 1st, 2022. But that increase is actually being characterized as a surcharge on high earners as opposed to a tax increase. The proposal would create a new income tax surcharge of 5% on income over $10 million and an additional 3% surcharge on income over $25 million. This surcharge would apply to both ordinary income and capital gains, which means a top marginal tax rate of 45%, and a capital gains rate of 31.8%, including the 3.8% net investment income tax. I think it goes without saying that an 8% tax increase on the highest earners would have a significant impact on individual taxpayers, including investors and founders of tech companies. You know, some folks might accelerate disposing of assets before year end, which certainly could impact markets, but many taxpayers might decide to defer selling their assets to avoid triggering the higher tax and instead may rely on borrowing against the assets to generate liquidity or hope that a future administration reverses the tax increase altogether. And how about on the trust and estate side? Does that same surcharge on higher earners apply? The same surcharges do apply to trust and estates, except at dramatically lower dollar thresholds. The 5% surcharge kicks in on trust income over $200,000 and the additional 3% surcharge applies to income above $500,000. The effect of these relatively low dollar thresholds means that for clients with very large non-grantor trusts, nearly all trust income will be subject to the 8% increase. 
Is there anything that can be done to mitigate the 8% surcharge on trust income? Some clients have questioned whether they, they could convert their non-grantor trust to a grantor trust, which in effect would switch from the trust rates to the individual rates. For our listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with the taxation of trust, a non-grantor trust is a trust which pays its own tax, and a grantor trust is a trust on which the grantor pays the tax. So that means income from a grantor trust will be subject to much higher individual thresholds of 10 million and 25 million before the surcharge kicks in, whereas non-grantor trust income would be subject to surcharge starting at 200,000. And while toggling grantor trust status is possible, it actually has its own pitfalls and issues to consider. So instead, I think the more logical workaround we might see to manage tax rate increase on non-grantor trusts would be to make distributions to individual beneficiaries, which would, in most instances would carry out trust income to them and thus be subject to the individual thresholds, reducing the overall family tax bill. Alternatively, if it's capital gain income that you're worried about, you could distribute the particular stock or investment to the beneficiary who could then sell it and recognize the gain. But both of these things kind of creates their own problems because putting assets in the hands of the beneficiaries undermines the creditor protection benefits of a trust structure and also the control aspect that a trust offers. So as a result, we might see things like pin-me-down trusts and asset protection trusts becoming more popular to address the creditor and control issues. Other clients are looking at private placement life insurance to address income tax issues in their trusts. PPLI, as it's called, allows an individual to combine the financial advantages of highly taxed hedge funds and similar investments with the tax advantages of life insurance wrapped in a single investment account. And if it's properly structured, a private placement life insurance policy could provide tax-free death benefit to heirs, as well as tax-free growth on the investments in the investment account. This year, I heard that there were going to be changes to grantor trusts as well. Is that still the case under the most recent proposal? Not anymore, Sarah. The uh, September proposal would have signified the end of grantor trust as an effective estate planning tool, but the October redraft dropped the grantor trust provisions entirely. Also eliminated from the October bill were the provisions impacting the estate and gift tax exemption, which will remain at 11.7 million per individual in 2021, as well as provisions which would have eliminated valuation discounts for family limited partnerships and similar family estate planning vehicles. So after the hysteria of the past couple of months, it looks like we will end up with very little, if any, changes to the estate planning world. And as I'm sure you've also heard, the mark-to-market tax or billionaire's tax also is dead on arrival and is unlikely to make it into the final legislation. Davis, another issue that's highly relevant for those of us in California is the state and local tax deduction. How does the most recent proposal treat the SALT deduction? Under the most recent proposal, the cap on the state and local tax, known as SALT, will be increased from 10,000 to 80,000, effective retroactively to January 2021. That, of course, is a welcome development, but there actually has been a more important recent development in SALT deduction separate and apart from the new federal proposal. Earlier this year, several states, including California and New York, have enacted the so-called pass-through entity tax or PTET legislation, which is designed to be a workaround of the SALT cap. Under PTET, a partnership or multi-member LLC could elect to pay state tax at the entity level. 
effectively allowing the state taxes on the partnership income to be fully deductible from federal taxable income in the hands of the owner or the investor. PTED is an important strategy that our Silicon Valley clients should be aware of, especially if their businesses are already structured as a partnership for income tax purposes and generating substantial California source income. So Dave, just to, to stop you there, so you mean venture capital firms and similar entities could take advantage of this? Yes, absolutely. The shift of businesses out of California and other high tax states to no or low tax states has already been happening for the past several years, but the salt increases and more importantly, the PTET legislation could be a small step in reversing the trends to leave. Certainly a lot to watch there and, and perhaps that's a good segue to business tax. Davis, what changes can our corporate clients expect to see? There was a lot of talk about increasing the corporate rate, but surprisingly, most corporations will not see any increase to their tax bill under the most recent iteration of the proposed legislation. Despite the earlier proposals, the corporate tax rate will remain at 21% at maximum. However, some corporations may see an increase in their tax because the new proposal suggests a minimum 15% tax for companies that report over $1 billion in annual profit averaged over a three-year period. This tax is designed to target the largest corporations and is meant to prevent them from paying minimal or no taxes. In addition, we should know that the proposal includes a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks for public companies that will be effective beginning in 2022. Bashir, for many investors in early stage companies, the QSB stock gain exclusion is really important. What do you see in the proposal with regards to that? Thanks, Matt. I mean, the biggest change to highlight, especially for our tech and startup clients structured as C-Corps, is the limitation on the qualified small business stock or QSB stock gain exclusion. Under current law, an individual generally may exclude 100% of their gain realized on the sale of qualified small business stock to the extent that the gain exceeds the greater of $10 million or 10 times the taxpayer's basis in the stock. But under the proposal, taxpayers with income of $400,000 or more would be eligible to exclude only 50% of any such gain. This limitation would apply to all sales or exchanges occurring after September 13, 2021, which was the date of introduction of that September proposal, except for any sales or exchanges that were entered into pursuant to a binding contract that was in place on or before September 13th. And unfortunately, this proposal could have a significant impact for founders and venture capital investors and startups. And it also may make the corporate form relatively less attractive going forward. Uh, and a popular topic these days, what about carried interest? Well, Matt, there were a few proposals over the years that could have closed down or narrowed the carried interest exception. And there was such a proposal in the September proposal. But again, none of them ultimately made it to the most recent proposed legislation. So this change together with a QSBS limitation that Bashir just described could potentially shape the venture capital business model over the coming years in favor of partnerships rather than corporations. Shifting gears a little bit, 
can we expect changes to retirement accounts? We previously heard about the Peter Thiel rule in previous iterations of the legislation. Although there were changes to retirement accounts, substantial ones in the September proposal, they were completely removed from what we saw in October. However, what we're hearing now is that some of those proposals may be back on the table, but we haven't seen the, the legislative text yet, and we expect to hear more in the coming days. That's a lot of information to digest, and it sounds like there'll be plenty of updates going forward on this front, which we'll be keeping an eye on. So thanks, Davis and Bashir, for posting us on what's current. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice and to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.cellcom.com. Thank you.